0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this episode, we'll be looking at the ethical, political, and religious thought of Thomas Hobbes. I've been wanting to cover Hobbes for a while now, and I've been looking for a good guest to do so. A while back, a couple of months back actually, I posted on Twitter and Facebook asking for recommendations to who would be a good guest for this because. As you'll hear in this interview, I'm not uh, a Hobbes specialist. I find him fascinating, but I'm definitely not the right person to explain the intricacies of um, his philosophy. And when I, when I posted asking for recommendations, there was a few different ideas. But overwhelmingly, people wanted me to get on today's current guest, um, Arash Abizadeh. And I reached out to him. He came on and I'm delighted to bring you the result. As always with this podcast, I, or as always in the last few months, I sort of find myself in the introduction, mentioning the things that I won't be talking about in this episode. So as I'm recording this introduction, I'm watching live on CNN, Terrible Habit, The impeachment trial finally seems to be wrapping up, although there's apparently a few loose ends to tie down, but it seems as though we pretty much know what's going to happen. I mean, who knows? I've been wrong before. Maybe by the time you're listening to this, some really dramatic series of events will have unfolded that completely upends our expectation. But barring that, It does look like that process is wrapping up. And simultaneously, another process I've covered a lot on the podcast um, Brexit is finally being realized. So, you know, there's a whole load I could say about both those things, but I think I'm going to stick with my current um, abstention from discussing current affairs. Um, coming up in the next few weeks, I do have quite a long interview um, with Professor Robert Talese, um, in which I give a fairly frank assessment of where I think American democracy is at right now. And although that was recorded um, before the events I just mentioned, I think the v- views I expressed there. Or, oh, if anything, strengthened by them. And I'm also working on another solo series. It was initially going to be just a single solo episode, but I ended up pulling together so much material. I thought, why not, why not have fun with this and make this the next big extended series, which um, looks at the relationship between political ideology and class structure through a number of different societies. Over time. And so that won't be directly relevant to current events, but I think will in some ways speak to many of the narratives that we are developing about political elites currently. So that's all coming up. But for now, though, let's go back to England at the time of the Civil War and learn about one of the most fascinating and distinctive political thinkers in our canon. Like I said, the guest came really highly recommended and for obvious good reason. And as I also said, you'll hear me asking some genuine questions in this interview to try and make sense of how all the different pieces of Hobbes' philosophy fit together. So my guest today, Professor Abizadeh, is a professor in the Department of Political Science and an associate member in the Department of Philosophy at McGill University. He specializes in contemporary political theory and the history of political philosophy. He received his BA from the University of Winnipeg in 92 and an MPhil from Oxford in 94 and a PhD from Harvard in 2001. His research focuses on democratic theory, democracy's relation to questions of identity, nationalism and cosmopolitanism, immigration and border control, the relation between the passions, rhetoric, discourse and politics, and 17th and 18th century philosophy, particularly Hobbes and Rousseau. He is the author of Hobbes and the Two Faces of Ethics, which is what we primarily discuss in this interview, as well as some other aspects of Hobbes' philosophy. So, with that as preamble, let's get started. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor Arash (music) Abizadeh. by Professor Arash Abizadeh. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, just before we get started, how do you describe yourself? What do you like to read and teach and uh, write about?
1: Well, I uh, teach political philosophy at uh, McGill University in Montreal, and uh, my uh, teaching varies broadly. So, I teach an introductory course to political theory. I teach... Um, courses in the history of political thought, including medieval renaissance and the early modern period. And then I teach more specialized courses, including at the graduate level in uh, contemporary democratic theory. Um, And uh, recently I've taught a seminar on power and domination. So I vary both. I I teach both in the history of uh, political philosophy and also in contemporary um, political theory.
0: I might have some questions as we go of me trying to make sense of the Hobbes giving you like modern analogues and saying, and you can tell me why I'm getting it completely wrong, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. So we would, my first question is, we were talking a little bit before I hit record about approaching um, Hobbes for the first time, and I mentioned that Hobbes can sometimes seem quite challenging. Uh, to a student if, if, you know, they're coming from like Locke, Machiavelli, Rousseau, suddenly um, Hobbes can seem a lot harder. Um, And your sort of account of why that was was to do with the translations. Do you want to talk us through that?
1: Sure. So, I mean, one of the things that will confront a uh, contemporary student of Hobbes is that Hobbes is not writing quite in the same language that uh, we are used to in English today. Um, That's not going to strike somebody who's reading Rousseau or Machiavelli in English translation, because the translations that they're reading them in are into modern English, which is the language that we're familiar with. But in fact, Hobbes is writing in 17th century English, which is, in many ways, in its punctuation, its syntax, and even its vocabulary, um, often quite different from what we're used to. And so um, that's an extra challenge that readers today are going to face when reading Hobbes, but not the case when they're reading someone uh, in translation. Although, as we also talked about, if I'm reading Machiavelli,
0: say virtue and fortuna, those or fortune, sorry, those words do not mean the same thing to him that they do to us. So there's always going to be a translation problem, but Absolutely. it's less it's less immediately apparent for the works it, we encounter in translation.
1: Exactly. So in some ways, it's actually a, a, it's a bonus, precisely because it's more immediately transparent to a reader of Hobbes that you're reading something in a kind of foreign language. Um, then you're immediately alerted to the fact that, oh, I may have to question my assumption about what the words mean, um, that you might not might not be immediately apparent to you when you're reading um, Machiavelli or Russo. So in some ways it's a handicap, but in other ways it's an advantage.
0: So it's like the the start of the learning curve is steeper, but it doesn't mean that the other learning curves don't go equally as high.
1: That's right, and in fact, well, I think that for a uh, for an anglophone, once you kind of get into the rhythm of the prose um, and you get used to the 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 syntax and the punctuation, um, then uh, after a while, you know, it becomes easier. And uh, and and Hobbes is a wonderful writer. So um, once you've gotten into the rhythm of it, you can enjoy his prose.
0: So what advice would you give to a student encountering, you know, like I say, you get these courses where you just do like a thinker a week. Say you've only got a week on Hobbes and you just get Leviathan, lands in your reading list. What advice do you give to that student?
1: Well, usually what will happen if all you're doing is spending a week on Hobbes in, a, in an introductory course often the focus is going to be on his uh, perhaps even just chapter 13 of Leviathan. You're not going to read the whole of Leviathan in, in a week. And it's going to focus on his account of war. And um, so I guess the advice is to try and understand what the, what the motivation is. What, what is. what is Hobbes' political project, for? why it is that he's describing this horrific state of nature In the state of war, and something as a state of war, and something that helps is if you have some historical background about what's happening in the 17th century when Hobbes is writing, and he's writing in a time where England, uh, his native home, has descended into civil war, um, or he's writing in the aftermath of the civil war. So there's a tremendous amount of constitutional uh, um, skirmishes and and fighting that's going on. And knowing something about that historical background can bring alive some of the motivations for why it is that Hobbes is describing um, the state of nature, which he understands as a state in which there's no functioning, overarching sovereign power or government, uh, why it is such a horrific place to be in. How would your
0: advice change then, say someone's got a bit longer with Hobbes, but they're still finding it challenging, say they've got like a... Semester and a paper that they're going to write at the end of it or something like that and they're taking on a Broader chunk of his writings like not just one particular chapter. What would Uh your advice to that student be?
1: Well, I guess it would be to figure out what it is that you find um, That my, my own approach to these texts often is what is it that I disagree with most? because actually I think that at the end of the day Hobbes is uh, a fairly systematic writer. So if you, if you can understand what his um, assumptions are and what his premises are, the argument follows a kind of systematic development. Uh, and so it's not hard to follow. What I think is required really is to find your motivation in confronting Hobbes. And because Hobbes says things that may either resonate deeply with somebody or says things that people might disagree with greatly... Often it's those things that you should focus on so that it gives you your kind of energy to get into the project.
0: Could we say a few words about method here? Because this is something else that people comment on in Hobbes, in that if you're reading... You know, anywhere from Plato to Machiavelli, it, it seems like they're just working in a different sort of conceptual structure of what one is doing when one does philosophy. Like, there's, there's a lot of metaphor, there's a lot of allegory, there's a lot of... It's sort of like this other thing, you know? Whereas Hobbes feels self-consciously much more formal and systematised, which isn't necessarily to say even that one is better, just it's different ways of thinking about what you're doing.
1: Yeah, so its it, you're, you're absolutely right. It is very much systematized and formal in that way, though this is not unprecedented. I mean, that's the way, I mean, the scholastics who predate Hobbes were even much more uh, formal and systematic in the way that they would carry an argument. So it's not something that is um, unprecedented at all. But what is, I think, more familiar to us is that Hobbes, uh, especially in the English, uh, English sort of philosophical world, Um, Hobbes, as one historian, Richard Tuck has put it, pretty much created English language philosophy. He's the first uh, writer in the English vernacular language to um, systematically do philosophy. And so we kind of live his legacy in English because he very much laid the foundations for the future development of philosophy in the English language. Prior to that, of course, uh, Europeans were doing philosophy not in their vernacular, but in in, uh, the Latin language. And then
0: in terms of situating Hobbes in history, the argument you make in The Two Faces of Ethics is that Hobbes is kind of like, how would you call it, like a midpoint, a transition point, a tipping point? Yes,
1: yes. He's he's standing at a watershed between between, um, a kind of ancient uh, conception of ethics uh, that can be traced all the way back to the uh, ancient Greeks. Um, and a more modern conception of ethics or morality. Um, And in particular, what is distinctive is that uh, for the ancients, um, the reasons that you have to do things, so why should you, why ought you to, for example, be just to others, ultimately find their justification in the fact that doing so, acting in this way, is good for yourself. So why should you be just to others? Why should you be... Uh, moderate, why should you be prudent, why should you be courageous, and so on. These are the classical virtues. The reason is, is because these are constituent elements, for example, of what it is to lead the good life, and the good life being the ultimate good of uh, of, of uh, human life, according to the classical philosophers. So the ultimate justification always comes back to your own good in the classic conception. What's happening in the 17th century with thinkers such as Grotius and Hobbes in particular is that they are working with a new conception of obligation, a conception of obligation according to which the reason why you should do something, the reason why you're obliged to do it, is not, immediate, is not um, ultimately grounded in the fact that it's good for you, but rather in the fact that you owe it to others to do it. So it's a kind of other-regarding reason that you have for which those others can hold you accountable and that they have the standing to hold you accountable. And it's the fact that they have that standing and it's the fact that you owe it to them that gives you the reason, uh, a reason to do it. And the problem for someone like Hobbes is that having kind of developed this idea, which then becomes central to, I think, the modern conception of morality, uh, is that for him, um, this creates a potential uh, it creates a potential chasm between doing your moral obligation and what is good for you. And so his, his problem is to make sure that these two things don't come apart. Because in principle they could now, because it's not by definition uh, equivalent to each other. And since they could in principle come apart, for Hobbes it's important that they don't in practice come apart because uh, he has a particular account of human psychology according to which we simply can't do things unless we conceive them to be good for ourselves. So if we don't perceive them to be good for ourselves, we can't do them. And he doesn't want morality, and in particular this kind of moral obligation that we owe to others, to impose uh, obligations on us that it would be psychologically impossible for us to fulfill.
0: So let me just concretize that a bit to just sort of wrap my head around it, if nothing else. So Hobbes is sort of wrestling with a dilemma or a potential dilemma, which is quite familiar to us, which is how do you, very very crudely, how do you reconcile the individual and the common good, or I guess how do you reconcile our good and what we owe to others? Now, that seems like a question we would ask, but if I think back to, well, the most obvious example that comes to mind is Plato's Republic, the challenge isn't to show that the just man who suffers should nonetheless be just because there are countervailing reasons which outweigh his own suffering. The, the, the challenge is to show that the just man who suffers is still better off somehow. He has some sort of, like, internal peace or whatever mm. that ultimately mm. it is... And you can, you know, debate if you think Plato... Delivers this or not, but the the challenge that Plato gives himself or that's given to Socrates is why is it still good for you to be just even if it might potentially lead to you losing money or power or suffering or something like that. Yes. Um. And so the the challenge, the framing of the question, is different. It doesn't even occur to Plato to say, well, there might be a case where you suffer because of it, but there's these other reasons I can bring in. It's just all about individual, what's good for that person.
1: Well, the, 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 the classical way to respond to this challenge, I mean, I think the challenge does occur and he has characters who puts it to them, but the classical way to respond to that challenge is to um, is to appeal to their theory of what is good for people. In other words, What the the classical Greek uh, philosophers would say, pretty much all of them except for a certain class of hedonists, what they would say is that uh, the reason why you ought to be just, um, even if you're losing out as a result of being uh, just, it, it ends up that you suffer on these other fronts. The reason why you should be just and the classical conception of of being just had to do with serving the common good. So the reason why you should serve the common good is because the common good is actually a constitutive part of your own good. So there's a kind of classical assumption about the harmony of interests, which is secured by the fact that what is good for me, if I look now to see what are the component parts of my own good, what I will see on the classical view is that the common good, which we can specify antecedent to what is good for me as an individual, that common good is one of the components of my own good. And so that's why it's good for me to serve the common good on that classical view. That's exactly the assumption that Hobbes drops. So Hobbes does not assume that there is such a thing. And in fact, he rejects the view that there's such a thing as a common good that we could specify independently of what is good for each individual separately. If there is a common good, and Hobbes thinks that there is, that common good is simply what, it simply consists in the overlap between each individual's own independently specifiable good. And the common good that they all share, in other words, the thing that is good for each of them, is peace social peace. Why? Because what is good for each individual is that they live in a peaceful society so that they can pursue their uh, desires in a um, predictable and systematic fashion. So that's the, that's the, the, the assumption that Hobbes is rejecting is the idea that the way that you face that challenge is by looking to see what is good for each individual and finding that what is good for each individual is to serve the common good. He rejects that view. Okay, So we can spec- what is good for each individual may in fact clash with others, um, that doing justice is not an intrinsic part of my own good. So justice, doing justice is going to be good for me only if it instrumentally serves the other things that are good for me. And because Hobbes is a hedonist, the thing that is good for me, according to Hobbes, is that I maximize my pleasure over time and minimize my pain. So if justice is good for me, it has to be good for me because it serves my other interests. And that's a departure from the classical view about the uh, constitutive um, goodness of the common good for each individual.
0: And it's a justificatory. So you could imagine today um, we have. um, So I did. I've done some interviews and some stuff about, say, liberal justification from sort of like John Stuart Mill through to John Rawls and there's this sort of debate about the right versus the good. Okay, so correct me if I'm getting this wrong, because I may well be, but the way that we're using the right and the good in that sense is slightly different to the way Hobbes is thinking about it, because even if you take a type of liberalism like John Stuart Mill or Hobson or Hobhouse, which is a sort of consequentialist liberalism appealing to conceptions of the good, its argumentative mode isn't you should support my liberalism because that is innately in your self-interest. It's no, we have a particular vision of what is good for people. And this sort of liberalism, the argument goes, will maximize it overall. That's a different sort of justificatory move to saying, no, you supporting the common good is good for you as an individual. Did I track that right?
1: Yeah, although that's right. But the the complication with Hobbes is, that he is and i think this is kind of the the watershed moment in the 17th century is he is now distinguishing between at least implicitly reasons of the good and reasons of the right so reasons of the good for hobbes are those reasons that you have to do things in virtue of the fact that it serves your interests in virtue of the fact that it's good for you but reasons of the right are the reasons that you have to do things in virtue of the fact that you owe it to others and so the, these two things in Hobbes's ethics track um, two very different kinds of obligation. The first is, if you like, prudential obligations. These are all articulated in what he calls the laws of nature, which, as I understand it, are prudential in the sense that, um, you know, you, you ought to fulfill the laws of nature because it's good for you to do so. These are reasons of the good. But there's something else that happens in our relationships with other beings as persons who recognize others as persons, have a kind of standing and capacity to be able to take on new obligations that we owe to others through the device of the conventional device of contract and promise making. Um, uh, what he, you know, and covenant as he calls it. Before we uh, get the, to the
0: yeah? before we get to the promise making, could we just zero in on the um reasons of the good and natural law just to try and nail that one down so in other words when he says you ought to follow natural law he's not saying like there's some sort of external reason for that or there's some sort of like moral code that you're conforming to what he says is everyone is going to sort of want their own hedonistic good and we're rational creatures so applying ration it's almost like Hedonism plus rationality gives you the laws of nature. he's just saying you you want to follow your own good and you should be rational in doing so, therefore, from those two, I can give you however many laws of nature he has, but he's not appealing to because other people or because divine code or because some deantic constraint, he's just saying this is just what you get if you i guess in today's terms we would say rationally maximize your own good:
1: isn't it? Yes, yes and yes yes, with a slight caveat. so you're absolutely right when you say that intrinsically speaking, the laws of nature, um, you're not obligated to follow the laws of nature in virtue of something that you owe to others or some deontic constraint, etc etc. So that's absolutely right. There's a debate about um, how to understand these kinds of reasons of the good in Hobbes. So the way that I think that you were tending to characterize it is, it's as if it's just a kind of empirical fact of the matter, that in virtue of the fact that we are rational, um, that we uh, are instrumentally rational in this way, um, that this is how we're going to behave. Uh, so that's not quite the view that I have about Hobbes. I think there's something stronger, and, and, and in particular, something normative about the laws of nature. Um, which is that it's not just that it so happens that we all want to seek our own good and that we will do so and the laws of nature tell us how this is done. It's that we have a reason to take care of our own good over time. So this is normative. We have a reason to do this. It's a genuinely normative reason um, that we ought to take care of our own well-being over time. And this is what the laws of nature, um, uh, this is what they prescribe to us. So, I would understand it as properly normative in this way. Um, and the other, that's, that's the first caveat. And the second caveat about this is that um, despite the fact that that's what I take the intrinsic nature of the laws of nature to be, that it's prudential, nevertheless, it's possible to um, superimpose on this purely prudential set of maxims a kind of obligation that you owe to others. To fulfill the laws of nature. And that's precisely what happens when, for example, you take, as Hobbes puts it, where you where there and there are those who take the laws of nature to be the command of God, or the laws of or once you enter into Commonwealth and the sovereign implicitly has incorporated the laws of nature into the civil law, in virtue of your obligations that you owe to others, um the laws of nature now may actually impose reasons of the right on you. But that's not intrinsic to the laws of nature. That's something that happens by convention.
0: But in the absence of a state in the state of nature, you've just got the first bit. You've just got the laws of nature.
1: In the absence of any kind of contractual relationships that you've established with others. And so there's a a controversy about whether or not there can be contractually... um, uh, contractual obligations that are valid in the state of nature. Some people read Hobbes as saying that they're they're impossible in the state of nature. Um, I read him as saying is that they're very precarious, though they're still possible. So
0: just to try and lock in, you've got the two faces, the two foundations. Try and wrap up the first one. You've got like hedonism plus reason gives you the uh, laws of nature but it's not just like a descriptive in that people are going to do their own thing and should be rational about it like you know it might be that some people aren't rational and act in self-destructive ways it's more like if this is what reason would imply and it's the reason it's the fact that there are reasons that bring the ought the normativity into it
1: yes that's right so it's what you ought to do um the laws of nature prescribe to you what you ought to do uh, in order to um, preserve yourself. And Hobbes takes uh, it to be a kind of imperative, a normative imperative that we preserve our lives in the long run. The, the,
0: the quote is, um, I'm doing this from memory, so you might get it better than me, but seek peace wherever you should find it. And if it is not available, resort to every advantage of war or something like that. And something that, like that, yeah. And that would just follow from putting reason to your self-interest. You should always want peace, and if it's not available, you do whatever you can to stay alive. Yes. Okay, so that's the first foundation. The second one is um, reasons of the right or reasons of justice. If we've sort of like mapped out the foundation of the first, where does the, how does the second one get off
1: the ground? So the second one has to do, um, with convention. If, uh, if by nature we have reasons of the good, so it's just, these are natural. They don't require us to have done anything. We simply ought to, uh, according to Hobbes, we are, the kind of creatures who ought to uh, preserve ourselves and preserve our own good over the long run. Um, in the second case, when it comes to reasons of the right Hobbes doesn't think that we have any reasons of the right or what I call juridical obligations, obligations that we owe to others in this pure state of nature. We can only have these kinds of reasons that we owe to others, and therefore these obligations in this uh, juridical sense, if we have undertaken some kind of action uh, to acquire these obligations. So uh, paradigmatically, these are uh, contracts, these are promises that we make, uh, when we engage in covenants. So if I promise to you that I will do X, Y, or Z, um, then uh, I may acquire this obligation that I owe to you and that you have a standing to hold me accountable to it. And, and, and uh, this is something that does not exist by nature, according to Hobbes. In fact, by nature, Hobbes thinks that I am permitted, so I, don't, I am permitted to do whatever it is that I think is necessary to preserve myself, including killing you, for example. That's by nature. So any kind of obligations that I acquire to refrain from certain kinds of actions um, only arise in virtue of some kind of conventional undertaking of my own, such as contract, covenant, uh, renunciation, promise-making, and so
0: on. But his... um... I mean, like like many other sort of contract theorists, his um his account of um the things we can do to um, incur those obligations is quite broad. So he talks about like signs of consent, right? Like Locke yes. would say, tacit consent. I don't know. if yes. I, don't, I don't think Hobbes uses that word, but this idea that. Um, you're just simply behaving in certain ways with others can acquire, um, can, can create these sorts of obligations for you. So it's not just we both sit down and sign a contract.
1: That's right, because for Hobbes, he certainly has a conception of tacit consent or implicit consent. And um, what's particular about Hobbes' account of consent is that he doesn't think that we, it's necessary for me to consent to something that I intend to do so. What is necessary uh, for me to consent is that others reasonably be able to impute to me the intention to consent. So it's actually not my actual intentions that matter here. It's the kind of relationship that I have with others and what they could reasonably impute to me. So if, for example, I act in a way that others could reasonably impute to me the intention to, for example, take on some obligation to them, then, in fact, I do take on that obligation, according to Hobbes. And conversely, um, he thinks that there are certain things that I could never contract. There are certain obligations that I could never contractually acquire. And the reason is not because I can't intend to acquire them. It's that no one could reasonably presume that I intended to do that. And in particular, he thinks that reasonable imputation uh, is premised on the idea that we are all prudent and uh, seek to preserve ourselves. So there are some rights, as he puts it, that he thinks are inalienable because he doesn't think that anyone could reasonably understand me to have tried to give them up. So, for example, I could not, Hobbes thinks, contract to give up my rights to defend myself in the face of an imminent threat to my life. Now, In fact, I might sign a contract doing that or at least appearing that I would do that. But nobody else could genuinely understand me to have intended to actually give that up because they are um, they they wouldn't be able to think of me as a prudential creature if, in fact, they imputed that intention to me. So there's some kinds of uh, liberties that Hobbes thinks are simply inalienable. And that's because he doesn't think that the acquisition of obligation is grounded in my actual intentions. It's grounded in the intentions that others could reasonably impute to me.
0: So can we cash out the words natural and artificial and what work they're doing here? So natural is like hedonism plus reason gives you natural rights, natural law. Artificial is what then? What others might assume or impute to you?
1: So artificial, I mean, natural is the thing that exists independently of any uh, act of the human will. Um, And artificial is uh, what is created by um, uh, voluntary human action. And so uh, the obligations that we acquire through our voluntary actions, um, and in particular, these juridical obligations that we owe to others, those are artificial. Whereas the obligations that we have, that we don't owe to anybody, But they're simply obligations of preserving ourselves. Uh, They're natural obligations um, because they're not dependent on any kind of voluntary action of ours.
0: So could we bring the idea of um, personhood into the natural artificial thing? So a natural person can exist without other people and their personhood is given to them in light of their reason, right?
1: Yes. So Hobbes makes a distinction between natural persons and artificial persons. Right. However, it's a bit tricky because both of these categories, both natural personhood and artificial personhood, are in fact artificial in, one, in the sense that I just described. So when he makes that distinction between natural and artificial, he's, he's tracking a different uh, distinction. And what do I mean when I say that both kinds of personhood are artificial is that you can't be a person unless others take you to be a person, or at least uh, you can't be a person to someone unless they take you to be a person. So it's just a natural fact of the matter, according to Hobbes, that for example, I have the capacity to reason. Okay. Um, I have the capacity to reason in virtue of my mental faculties in virtue of the fact that I have language and so on, uh, and it's not dependent on anybody thinking of me as capable of reasoning, even if everybody else thought that, oh no, I can't reason, I still would be able to do so. So it's not dependent on anybody's perception or conception of me. That's different about personhood. I can only be a person uh, if someone is conceiving of me as a person. So it's Mm -hmm. artificial in that sense.
0: Um, so it has to be recognized you have to have exactly it's dependent on recognition that's
1: that's exactly right that one way to put this is that it requires some kind of recognition exactly right now the difference between a natural and an artificial person is that a natural person in one way personates himself so there are those uh, actions that i undertake um that are the result of my own uh will and that i represent to others uh, and I, I, I used to sort of pre- create my own persona. Um, and in, and in so far as I do, so I'm a natural person. Um, an artificial person is a person that is either represented by, or is uh, representing somebody else. And that's the difference. That's the difference that he's tracking in that distinction between a natural and an artificial person. So for example, a, Uh, A lawyer who represents you in a court of law represents your person and is therefore an artificial, that's an artificial person that's being represented in the court of law um, because it's a representation of someone else.
0: So we might want to do a bit of breaking down here on representation, right? Because the lawyer can represent someone who's not there, in which case there's sort of an artificial person who they're representing. Exactly. But there is still a real person somewhere who sort of correlates to that, right? But then, in the case of the state, you know, the real person disappears altogether. It can be embodied in, like, a monarch or a sovereign, but it doesn't have to be, right? Like, Hobbes allows that his theory could work with a republic or a democracy or something like that, in which case the person of the state is something that can be represented by people acting on its behalf, but that the real person disappears altogether. Like, that seems a bit confusing.
1: Well, if what you mean by a real person is a natural person, Hmm. um, then that's right, because the state is not a natural person. The state is an artificial person. And the state is uh, represented by the sovereign. Um, at least that's one way to think about what Hobbes is doing, is to say that the sovereign, and let's, let's assume that we're dealing with a monarchy, what the sovereign is doing is representing the person of the state. And as, as he puts it, he bears the person of the state. He personates the state. But the sovereign, well, state, but the
0: so- huh? but the sovereign isn't the person of the state. It's
1: not the famous well, that's, Bourbon,
0: Bourbon post.
1: Yeah, that's, the, that's tricky, because the word is there, when we're using it in relation to representation, um, can mean different things. Uh, There is a sense in which the sovereign is the state. That sense just is the fact that the sovereign bears the person of the state. And that's one way in which uh, Hobbes sometimes metaphorically uses the term is. Um, But uh, more precisely, we should say the sovereign bears the person of the state. But here the state is not a natural person. The, 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 The state is a person that is created by individuals who... These are the subjects who contract with each other to authorize the sovereign to represent the state, which is the, um, in, if you like, the embodied unity of the subjects as a corporate entity. But that corporate entity of the people uh, or the state is itself artificial. It's not a natural person.
0: So this is the bit of Hobbes' argument that everyone knows. now. When he says the people contract together, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, right, but he doesn't imagine any historical or actual moment where everyone... I mean, it's not necessary for his argument, at least, where everyone sits down and says, we agree to this social compact. It's more just like we all desire peace, and we all live in a society with each other and give the sort of signs of consent, as he puts it, where others can reasonably infer that we desire peace and we desire to live in that society. That's sort of the move that gets the thing off the
1: ground. Yes, well, Hobbes actually has two distinct accounts of the origin of the Commonwealth or the the establishment of the Commonwealth. He uh, talks about two different roots. One is what he calls a Commonwealth or sovereignty by acquisition, and the other is a Commonwealth or sovereignty by institution. And it's the Commonwealth by institution that is the one that he starts out with and i think is the one that you have in mind and this is the idea where uh the the picture that he that he uh paints is one where individuals in the state of nature come together they assemble together and they contract with each other to agree to set up a sovereign above them to whom they will give sovereignty and that's the kind of sovereignty by institution where the subjects come together and they contract each of them with each of the other ones, and what's interesting about that account is that I think the the primary function of it is, is for Hobbes to give you the normative structure of the state. So as you say, it's not necessarily uh, meant to be a historical account, though it can be. So one of the things, for example, that he might have in mind is, after a civil war, the different parties to um, uh, the different parties who sort of. You know, they've come to a point where none of them is winning and they say, you know, we better we better just make a peace and set up a common power over ourselves. They could come together and contract with each other in, in a way that is uh, um, roughly analogous to the way what Hobbes describes in Sovereignty by Institution. Um, but historically, I think what Hobbes thinks historically has happened is more along the lines of Sovereignty by Acquisition. And this is a case where Uh, paradigmatically, there is a conqueror, there is a sort of, uh, you know, there's a, there's a military, uh, superior military force, who conquers um, a set of others and subjugates them, and forces them to agree to be his subjects on threat of their death. And they promise, Hobbes thinks, on this account, they will promise to be his subjects. So it's actually they contract with the sovereign directly on this account, uh sovereignty by acquisition, to obey him and become his subject. And this is probably the account that he thinks is more historical in, in, in the way that sovereign uh commonwealths are initially established as by as sovereignty by acquisition
0: and but so in both cases you have this um artificial person, which corresponds yes. to no natural person, even in the case that there is a sovereign.
1: That's right. So you have a sovereign um, who represents something else, uh, and that is immediately an artificial person, right? So remember, insofar as I represent myself, I'm a natural person. Insofar as I represent someone else, I'm an artificial person. Um, And the thing that is being represented is an artificial person, right? And so immediately, since what we have The sovereign is a representative of the totality of his subjects, we we immediately have an artificial person. However, what's particular, and this this is where things get even a bit stranger in Hobbes' account, is that Hobbes makes a distinction between two different kinds of artificial person. He makes a distinction between an artificial person um, proper and and an artificial person by fiction. Uh, or an artificial person uh, uh, through real representation and, and one by fictional representation. And what does he mean by this is that in some instances, for example, when you authorize your lawyer to represent you in a court of law, that's the regular form of artificial personhood because the person being represented, namely me, is precisely the one who authorized the representer to represent them. So, I authorize someone to represent me, that's an artificial person, truly, as Hobbes puts it. But in some cases, and this is what's particular about the state, is that the ones who are authorizing the sovereign to represent the state or the people are different from the one who's being represented. So, each subject authorizes the sovereign to represent a third party, namely the state, and that's artificial person by fiction. So now we have three different entities. We have the one who authorizes, the one who represents, and the one who is represented. And when those three things come apart is where you have artificial person by fiction.
0: Right, which is where it gets kind of hard to like wrap your head around what's going on. I mean, I can follow the structure of the argument, but I find it quite hard to like just almost like visualize what Hobbes is thinking of right. when he
1: talks about... A good concrete example that is perhaps easier to visualize is the idea that he would have about the way that, for example, a lawyer might represent a child. So a lawyer can represent a child in court, but it's not the child that would have, have um, authorized or even has the standing to be able to authorize the lawyer to represent him or her. It's rather, let's say, the parent or the guardian who does so. So here you have the parent or the guardian who authorizes the lawyer to represent not the parent or the guardian, but to represent a third party, namely the child. And the reason is because the child on Hobbes' account is incapable of authorizing his or her own representative because the child is not yet a rational creature and therefore is not a natural person yet. And so when you have something that is not a natural person, it can be represented by someone, but it can only be represented by fiction. So the, um, the parent or the guardian uh, is someone who's gonna authorize a lawyer to represent a third party, namely the child, and the reason for that is that the child is not, on Hobbes' account, a natural person um, because the child is not yet rational. And it's only a natural person that could authorize someone to represent him or her. And so Hobbes thinks that uh, those things that are not themselves natural persons can be represented by others, but only by fiction. In other words, only on the authority of some third party um, that has dominion over um, the, uh, the entity that is not a natural person. So, for example, children. He thinks basically anything, practically anything, could be represented by fiction in this way. Even a bridge could be represented. Um, for example, an owner could authorize somebody else to represent the bridge and its interests.
0: Well, I was, um, the example that just came into my head was a national park. Like, the, you know, say, Theodore Roosevelt makes a national park and it's decided that this will um, be protected and someone goes to court to try and exactly. mine in it or log in it. Lawyers exactly. might represent the park, but there's no natural persons to be found. Exactly. That's exactly right. That
1: makes sense. So, in so this... the state is like that. The state is not a natural person, and therefore the state cannot authorise its own representative. And so who authorises the representative of the state uh, is the subjects themselves, mm. individually, who are natural persons.
0: So the government might authorise lawyers to defend the national park, just as the parents might authorise lawyers to represent the child but in both cases what the the thing that is being represented is like an imagining and it's an imagining that you can quite easily infer interests to the natural park wants to exist the child wants to have you know certain protections or interests or whatever um but it's just a construct in both cases
1: it is a social construct and that's the sense in which it is artificial
0: Yes. I suppose I should take the word just out of that. It is a construct, and that's how Hobbes thinks of the state. Exactly. That's super useful, actually. Okay, so then the next bit, though, where I'm just going to get confused again, is if we move the idea of artificial personhood over to religion, Um, Mm -hmm. because Hobbes is going to make use of this in his theology, right?
1: Absolutely. So Hobbes, for example, an example of an artificial person... Uh, that he gives in his list of artificial persons are the the pagan gods. So he thinks that the pagan gods are artificial persons. And in fact, he thinks that they're artificial persons by fiction, because the pagan gods themselves, not being natural persons, uh, are incapable of authorizing their own representative. And so some other party, uh, other people, natural people, have authorized, um, for example, the clerics to be able to represent uh, the pagan gods. And so it's precisely this uh, notion of personhood that plays a role, very important role in his um, moral and political philosophy that also plays a very important role in his theology. And what's what's interesting about all of this, if we go straight, if we sort of cut to the chase, is that Hobbes gives us a list in Leviathan of uh, examples of artificial persons by fiction um because he's you know he starts out by saying that practically anything can be represented by fiction and he starts out giving us uh examples and he gives different categories including of uh, inanimate objects such as bridges that can be represented by fiction then he gives us um animate but non-rational creatures such as children that can be represented by fiction and he, the last one that he gives us is um, Is the state or some kind of corporation that can be represented by fiction. And he also gives us pagan gods. Sandwiched in between all of this, uh, he mentions the Christian God. And he doesn't quite say explicitly that this is an artificial person by fiction, but it's in his list. It's sandwiched right there in the middle of his list. And the implication, of course, is is, uh, heretical, it's scandalous, in the 17th century the implication is that god is an artificial person by fiction
0: so you can see why people thought he was an atheist at the time even
1: though that's yes. that's yes, not quite that's
0: right. our meaning of the word atheist but still it's a long way from how people yes. at the time thought about god
1: well that certainly is different than how people thought of it and and in fact in the 17th century a- atheist basically meant your views of God are different than mine. Hmm. Um, so anybody who was, you know, had sort of heterodox views about, uh, about God would have been called an atheist. But um, he certainly is an atheist in the 17th century conception of what, what God is, which is to say that God is a natural person, or at least a supernatural person, certainly not something that is an artificial creation of human beings. So the way that I understand Hobbes is that he is a theist, in Leviathan, because he does believe that there is a God, but that he does think that God is an artificially uh, constructed person, artificial person by fiction.
0: And he makes a move which to me is very reminiscent of a much more modern theology, which is to say we can't really concretely say anything about God, like God is beyond our comprehension. We can honor him, or I forget the exact word he uses, mm-hmm. but we can honor him. But yeah. we can't really describe him. That's that seems quite modern to me as a way of thinking about God.
1: Well, there is an old tradition um, in Christian theology; it's called negative theology. The idea right. that anything that we say about God, uh, any any predication of God, is not in fact describing God's nature. Um, Hobbes falls some some he falls into that kind of a tradition. He does think that whenever we appear to be describing God's nature, in fact, we are not, what we're doing is we're simply, um, we're praising. We're saying, you know, that God, we're, 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 we're commending or praising, or as you said, honoring God. Uh, so he makes a distinction between two different kinds of speech act. There's this, this kind of speech act, which is um, descriptive or constative, where you're describing the nature of the thing, you're giving it predicates. Uh, and the other is, where you are uh, praising or honoring or commending. And he thinks that um, the terms that we use that look like they're describing God, in fact, are uh, not describing his nature because we cannot conceive of anything about God's nature. Um, All that we can do is express our desire to honor him.
0: But you can imagine two versions of that, one considerably more radical than the other. One would be there is a thing there, it's ontologically there, we just can't describe it. Or, or to use Hobbes's language, sorry, to say that there is a natural person, just that natural person cannot really be described by our limited language. The other is to say that... It's an artificial person, and that there's a thing that we've all sort of created together that we can't describe. Um, the the latter seems quite modern indeed as a way of thinking, because the the negative theology, like you can find that in a bunch of people, but the idea of God as a sort of construct, which we can nonetheless sort of honour and can be represented, and we can find meaning in that that doesn't seem like a very 17th century thing. I mean, I don't know. It's, I'm not...
1: quite, it's quite radical. Yeah, it's a very radical view, and, um, uh, and in fact, it's even more radical in the sense that Hobbes wants to ultimately say that God's representative on Earth is the sovereign. So that it's an artificial person by fiction who's uh, rep, who is ultimately represented by the sovereign, such that religion becomes wholly subordinate to the state? That's his political project. Um, but theologically, uh, you're absolutely right. This is a radical view about the nature of uh, of God. Uh, it's not that there isn't a thing there; it's that it's an artificial thing. As far as the natural thing is concerned. I wouldn't quite say that Hobbes denies that there is such a thing. It's that he's agnostic about it. He doesn't think, so if you think about you know, the, what we might call the god of philosophy, um, the first cause, he doesn't think that you can prove uh, or demonstrate the existence of a first cause one way or another. He thinks that that's not something that philosophy is capable of doing. And so ultimately, in a way, the most rational position to take, if you limit yourself to philosophical demonstration, is to uh, remain agnostic about this. Um, But once you have the artificial person of God that is created by human beings, um, then it becomes a matter of faith that you are able to uh, um, have faith that this natural thing this first cause exists and is the material substrate, if you like, of the artificial person of God. So it's not quite that he denies that there is a natural, uh, natural thing there, um, but that uh, you only can get to it by faith once you have the artificial person of God created in this way.
0: And it was important for Hobbes to be able to say that everything he professed to religiously was in accordance with, like, the laws of the land and the Church of England, because he thinks there's an obligation there, although how far this account is in conformity with, you know, Anglican Orthodoxy seems a little little bit of a stretch. But it was important yes. for him to say, I am observing what the sovereign or yeah, his representative Absolutely. asks me
1: to observe. Absolutely. So that's that's what makes things complicated, precisely because Hobbes takes himself as a subject of the sovereign uh, to be obligated not to contradict the sovereign's theological uh, requirements um, that makes it this is what makes it complicated in trying to interpret what his views are, because regardless of what his actual views are, he would um, not say for example if let's say that he was an atheist he wouldn't say that he's an atheist because that would be contrary to the laws of the sovereign so i don't think that he's an atheist but even if he were he wouldn't say it so that makes interpretation rather complicated um what's particular about leviathan and what's interesting about what he does in leviathan is that he writes leviathan and the theological views that he gives in a period this is it comes out in 1651 this is a period where Hobbes himself thinks that there is not a properly constituted sovereign who um, is obligating anybody to toe a particular religious line. And so, you know, he says that this, uh, right now I have freedom to say what it is that I think. And what's interesting is that when it comes, to, when he then uh, several years later translates uh, and abbreviates Leviathan into Latin, uh, he does this himself. Uh, he renounces some of the more unorthodox aspects of his theology that he had pronounced in Leviathan itself. So, so he—that's
0: like Hobbes, yeah. the philosopher, bringing himself into conformity with Hobbes as the subject. That's,
1: that's right, because in the period where he writes, where he writes the Latin Leviathan, there is now uh, the the restoration of the uh, English monarch. And hence, he sees himself as being obligated once again to toe the orthodox line. So he um, didn't.
0: He didn't view. This is a genuine question. Um, he didn't view um, Cromwell then as, or you know, that government, however you want to call it. He didn't view that as like um, a properly constituted um, representative to which he would owe allegiance.
1: Well, no, he would, and in fact, he went back to England under Cromwell's reign, um, and uh, he would—he certainly would have seen it as uh, a—at a certain point, he would have seen it as a sovereign to whom he owed allegiance once uh, Cromwell uh, and the Cromwellians had demonstrated the capacity to be able to maintain the peace. But there is a period uh, in the immediate aftermath of the civil wars uh, where he thinks that everything is still up for grabs. And that's that's where uh, sort of you have freedom to say what you think. Um, But but no, he uh, he went uh, he returned from Paris. He was in exile in Paris uh, throughout the 1640s. um, But uh, in the early 1650s, he returned to England um, under Cromwellian reign. Because, just one final political implication to tease out,
0: one thing about this model of when you owe allegiance is that Hobbes is often taken to be a monarchist, um, but at least just following the logical consequences of his theory, you owe allegiance to whoever can secure the peace, whatever
1: form of government
0: that might turn out
1: to be. That's absolutely right. So Hobbes has a prudential preference for monarchy. That's certainly the case. But he thinks that um, any government, uh, any, any, sorry, any sovereign, any form of sovereignty, whether it be monarchy, aristocracy, or democracy, uh, is preferable to the state of nature, which he thinks is a state of war. And so what that means is that whatever the form that sovereignty takes, as long as there's sovereign power, you owe it allegiance.
0: Okay. So, in closing, how do we think about the legacy of Hobbes? I guess two questions first is when people first encounter him, he tends to be presented as sort of a philosopher of authoritarianism is that Is that too glib? Is that how you describe him, or how would you want to amend that?
1: So, I think that's certainly a very important current in Hobbes's political thought. Hobbes is someone who is um, he's he's a one of the most forceful defenders of absolutism uh, in uh, absolute sovereignty. He thinks that sovereignty is unitary and indivisible and that it's absolute in the sense that the sovereign is an entity that is not accountable to anybody else. So that's the sense in which the sovereign is accountable. It's the supreme authority that owes nothing, uh, doesn't owe anything to anyone else. No one else can hold by right the sovereign accountable. For its actions. Um, So he's an absolutist in that sense. However, and this is where we uh, should be careful, sometimes, you know, from the 20th century on, sometimes people construe Hobbes as a kind of totalitarian, and that's a mistake. It's a mistake for a couple of reasons. First of all, there could have been no such thing as totalitarianism in the 17th century, simply because totalitarianism is a regime that aspires to regulate every aspect of the individual's life and that was simply not within the capacity of any kind of state that Hobbes could have possibly imagined. This is something that only arises as a possibility in the 20th century. So Hobbes was not a totalitarian and second, the second reason is that Hobbes, even though in principle he's an absolutist and thinks that the sovereign by right is not accountable to anybody, Nevertheless, for prudential reasons, he thinks that, the, that uh, the sovereign, if the sovereign knows what's good for him, will establish the rule of law. And so even though the sovereign in principle is above the law, Hobbes thinks that the sovereign, for prudential reasons, ought to work within the law, within an established, regularized legal system. So there's a weak sense in which Hobbes is a rule of law theorist, not in the sense that he thinks the, the, uh, the sovereign is subject to the law, which he doesn't, but in the sense that he thinks that the sovereign has prudential reasons to operate within the law.
0: As, um, has your study of Hobbes ever, perhaps indirectly, influenced your moral or political views? Has it ever made you think about anything differently? Not to say you're suddenly going to go back to being a 17th century monarchist, but is there anything in just thinking about these concepts that's shifted how you think?
1: Well, I'd say a couple of things. One is that um, one of the interesting things about Hobbes uh, that I quite like is that those who study Hobbes are not necessarily themselves followers of Hobbes. This is different from some other thinkers, for example, like Kant. A lot of people who study Kant or Marx tend to be sort of disciples of or followers in some loose sense, at least, of these thinkers. That's not necessarily the case with Hobbes, and that certainly includes myself. I'm not a follower of Hobbes. I'm not a Hobbist or a Hobbesian in this way. Uh, I'm rather a scholar of Hobbes. Um, so that's one thing. But one of the things that I do think that Hobbes is very uh, effective on is that he's very effective in helping to point out the fragility of political society. The fragility. This is what is, this is perhaps the fundamental core that animates all of Hobbes's political and moral philosophy is the sense that the political social structures that give regularity and predictability and some sense of security to our lives are um, always at the risk of collapse, that we should never take them for granted. And I think that that's a profound insight into the fragility of of society, human societies in general, and modern society in particular. And I think that uh, Hobbes uh, would not have had the kind of complacency that many people had in relation to, for example, Western liberal democracies and their stability, perhaps, you know, a decade ago. This has certainly been called into question today. Uh, I don't think that many people have the same sense of complacency that they might have had a decade ago. Um, But Hobbes... Would have never had, had that sense of complacency. And I think that's a profound insight about the fragility of the human condition.
0: What's his ultimate historical legacy in terms of, I mean, very briefly, of course, in terms of roots of influence? Because if I think about, say, Locke, to take the obvious analog, I can pretty easily go, well, this person's citing Locke, this person's citing Locke, this person's citing Locke. It seems a little bit harder to start tracing out what happened to Hobbes after Hobbes, but he's clearly had an impact as well. Um, Very briefly, of course, how would you think about his ultimate legacy and how this work was used after him?
1: Well, I think that there are many different currents that pick up on Hobbes. So perhaps mentioning one of them is that Hobbes takes from Bodin this idea of absolute sovereignty, unitary sovereignty. And I think that it's been extremely influential in, uh, in our in our time, this idea of sovereignty as somehow indivisible, as supreme, as an unaccountable entity. Uh, it's picked up, for example, by Rousseau, uh, and it feeds into this ideology of popular sovereignty, uh, sovereignty of the people, for example. Um, so it's extremely influential. It is influential in framing the interstate system that we live under, the idea that there is an entity that is sovereign over its own territory, and that uh, it's not accountable to anybody inside or outside. Um, it's been challenged, of course. So various kinds of challenges uh, from, uh, say, defenders of human rights uh, from within and uh, from with that, uh, from outside of states have challenged it. But it's still, nevertheless, probably one of the dominant ideologies of our time. This idea of um, state uh, sovereignty.
0: Okay. Terrific. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, is there any way you'd like to direct our listeners to go? Um, Twitter handle, website, to get your book? Anything like that?
1: Well, um, let's see. I'm terrible at this. I, I, uh, <laughs> yes, I would, but I don't remember what my Twitter handle is, so I can't tell you. <laughs> um, I think it should be A-A-B-I-Z-A-D-E-H. Um, and also, the the uh, the book is published by Cambridge uh, University Press. If you Google Hobbes and the two faces of ethics, it'll pop up. And I have a website where I've uh, put um, I, I, I show you where you can get access to uh, my all of my publications.
0: I just looked you up. Your Twitter is a a b i z a d h. Yes. There we go. All right. Terrific. Um, Listen, I learned a lot from this. So thank you. um, Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much for the interview.